Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast, the original all-turkey, all-the-time podcast with your co-hosts Andy Galliano and Cameron Weddington. In our weekly podcast, we're going to bring you some wild turkey calling tips like this. From there, we're going to go into, she's aggravated, there's another hen that's challenged her, or she's challenging another hen, she's going to cut an excited yelp. Advice from old pro turkey hunters like this. The turkeys typically don't like, I think, more times than not, to travel in an easterly direction into the sun first thing in the morning, especially after he gets up. It's a blinding thing. It, it, it's just like you. It's hard for you to see into the sun. Mm-hmm. So if I have a choice, I'm going to try to make it so that I'm going to be on the west side in the morning east side in the afternoon of a turkey exciting live hunts like this holy crap they're coming teach you how to cook your bird with advice such as this with some fresh rosemary and garlic and then cool that off and spread that along the inside of that butterflied turkey breast that we've seasoned on both sides wildlife management tips for your property especially with turkeys like this if you look at the type of habitats that turkeys need for nesting and brooding that tends to be habitat that can be managed more successfully with growing season fire than with dormant season fire. And hopefully along the way, we'll get plenty of these. Well, on November the 28th of 1953, I was attached when I popped out of my mom and the baby doctor spanked me on the bottom. I went, oh, and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> I like that. Thank you for tuning in, and now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 354, Wild Turkey Habitat Management with Dr. Grant Woods. And I am your co-host, and the guy who is noticing a little change. And I'm your co-host and the guy who's hearing good news. Oh, man, I got to have good news. Well, good news in many forms. Good news, A, baby's doing great. We had a check-in yesterday. So Josie is doing well. And not just my baby's doing well. Apparently the Pults this year are doing pretty darn good. I'm hearing really good reports in many different states about the patch this year. And I'm hearing it was a really good year. And that gets further confirmed by our guest today. So that that's awesome to hear from him. And you'll hear more about that. But I've had multiple people send pictures and reach out saying the hatch is incredible this year. And I'm pumped. Yeah. Well, my... And you said that, you know, yeah. the other day. You said you saw a ton of pulse. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I was very encouraged by that. And, you know, just like 
Grant says in our call today, you know, we're still going to lose some polts, but yeah, to see the kind of numbers that we're seeing right now, you start out with a whole bunch. Encouraging. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you got a much better odds of them making it to through the fall and, and into winter and on to next spring. So maybe yeah. maybe 2023 will be full of a lot of gobbling. And you know, we're at that time of year, at least in Alabama, where fawns have recently dropped or are still dropping. And so, I mean, I, you know, hate to wish death upon any critter by predator, but it's part of nature. And if that takes some of the focus, if yeah. a spotted fawn takes some of the focus from a coyote off of a turkey poult, which then, the, okay. <laughs> there are fawns everywhere. I don't know what it's like in Alabama, but holy crap there are fawns this year i have yeah i mean it's like they're just they're everywhere like if you drive down the road right now and you see a doe she's gonna have fawns with her it's pretty unbelievable i've never seen them like this honestly so it must have been a good year for raising kids apparently (laughs) for for everything yeah but but i agree hopefully hopefully coyotes are dining on the fawns and and enjoying some good red meat and not worrying about the turkeys yeah leave that white meat alone yeah screw the fawns Mm-hmm. Well, what's what are you noticing is changing? It's probably much more pronounced north of where I live, but boy, the days are getting a little bit shorter and a yeah. little bit shorter, and yeah. won't be long. We're gonna turn that corner in December, just before Christmas, and they'll start to get longer again, and we all know what that means. So, hey, you know, I used to look at the summer solstice as kind of a depressing day because I don't like the shorter daylight periods. Yeah. I don't like, you know, the days where you get eight, 10 hours of daylight. I yeah, like it's awful. Yeah. I like the days where you get 12, 13, 14 hours of daylight. You know, that's much more up my alley. But I have learned as I've gotten older to appreciate the shorter days because that means not going to be long the cycle starts again and we're going to be cranking up the longer days so yeah that's right and i I had a dream the other night i don't remember what exactly i was dreaming about i can guess but i was walking through a bunch of fall leaves and i Hmm. assume that was me out fall turkey hunting so (laughs) Mm -hmm. i'm ready to go it's just it's too dead gum hot to go out scouting and stuff right now but i'm gonna get out there and try to locate a flock pretty soon and see what happens but I, I can't wait to get after him this fall with a bow yeah. and which uh give myself a negative percent chance of killing one with a bow fall turkey hunting but come better than now. sitting at the house so come on i've got confidence in you you may not have confidence in you but i do hey if i call him up and get a shot at him heck of a morning you know oh yeah i'll be happy as can be no doubt so we'll see how yeah. that goes but I, I can't wait i'm i'm looking forward to it and not long, about a month and a half, I'll be able to go out there with the bow. So we'll see, we'll see what happens there. I just have to find me a flock and learn them. Yeah. But but uh, one thing that sucks about the fall season, it gets light so freaking late in the mornings before work. Like I, I usually don't have like an hour, you know. <laughs> yeah. Gets they're they're not flying down to like seven o'clock, and I got like an hour to try to make it happen. So it's pretty much a really quick roost hunt, and then you know head to work. The advantage five minutes hey that that is correct the the good five minutes will do it every time but the advantage is i can continue to go to the gym and then go turkey hunt and then go to work it's a heck of a morning but yeah that's true but yeah well we have got a heck of a show this week in my opinion i mean 
I've got to say, I I really, you know, I, I hate to brag and I'm not really bragging on us. I'm just bragging more on our guests, but the content that our guests have brought. Holy crap. Since the first of the year. Yeah. It's been awesome. Yeah, it's been. Really, really good stuff. We've been generating out some really good content with with these guests we've had. I mean, uh, today's show, I don't know where you're going to get more information in such a small amount of time than today's show, honestly. I mean, a lot of different spectrums, a lot of different information, detailed information, and really pertinent, useful information. So, yeah, timely. Yeah, something, you know. We got to manage our land because, you know, here in Tennessee, we got 233 days before we're cranking it back up. Yep. And we got time to manage land. So that's that's what we're talking about today is how you improve your habitat for turkeys before turkey season. Yeah. Well, we have 225 days, 16 hours, 20 minutes and 31 seconds before season starts here in Puerto Rico. Nice. We've so, got a ways to go yet, but with stuff like this filling our ears, it'll help pass the time. So I, I think we should just quit talking and go ahead and hop in this thing. I want to say something before we jump in there. All right. Tell you know, with our, not the last episode we did, not my first turkey in Puerto Rico for 2021, but the episode before mm-hmm. where we talked about the rise in non-resident turkey tags. Yeah, mind-blowing episode. Been been one of our more popular ones, honestly. Yes. Well, I got a little note from someone who, I'm not going to say took offense or took issue, because really that wasn't it. It was more or less a correction that he wanted to offer to Mm -hmm. me and to you, because I think he made the same, or reached out to you and said the same thing. Yeah, I got text as well. Yeah, and that was from Mike Chamberlain, and what he wanted to point out to everyone who heard that episode is that a lot of the studies that we hear about with the wild turkey, like gobbling surveys and that kind of thing, are secondary type research projects that are part of a larger research project being done. So in other words, you go out and you put radio collars on 25 toms, 75 hens. And if you're going to gather one bit of information about those birds, why not gather 15 different pieces of information about those birds? So when we mentioned in that episode about the rise in non-resident tags of how we would like to see more real research being done on how we can help these birds and more research done about how hunting impacts these birds instead of gobbling type studies being done to where it helps us as hunters be able to take more birds. Mike Chamberlain felt like he needed to reach out and just say, hey, that gobbling study that's being done is part of these larger research projects that are being done. So Cameron and I felt like we needed to mention that to everyone, you know, and and really, I guess, probably knew that from the times that we've talked to Mike, but just didn't think about it. But regardless, you know, I felt like it was something we needed to mention on the show. And Mike Mike thought it was something that we probably should mention to everyone yeah. as well. So, you know. Yeah, I think I was the one that actually said that. And it wasn't, uh, I wasn't trying to slight Mike, obviously, no. by any means. And no, no. wasn't even really pointing to his specific studies. I just was, in the moment, I was just saying, you know, 
that was just the best uh, uh, example that came to my brain quickly, I guess, of, sure, you know, rather than studying this, we need to be studying that kind of thing. But I understand some of the some of the gobbling studies are being done for nesting chronologically time period when that cranks up is going to correlate to nesting. So it it does have an effect on all of this. Absolutely. So those correct, you know, but I, I guess my point was some of the studies being conducted, not that one or any of his that I know about may be geared more towards the hunters than it is for the turkey. That was the point I was trying to make. Well, so, and I yeah. think he made a he made an excellent point there. He did, and you know that's that is kind of where he was going with his remark or comment that he made to me was, hey, look, you know we might be doing this, and yes, the hunters may benefit from this, but it also helps us to be able yeah. to give more information to the yeah. people who it's not just the hunters. And, yeah, right. Yeah. So, so that, that good clarification there. And, you know, my bad on that, that end for not making it more yeah. clear, but I appreciate him reaching out Look, and now we've clarified. So we good. I've never heard you claim to be perfect. I've never claimed to be perfect and we're going to be wrong. And, and so much of what we have to say is our opinions. Oh yeah, Mike, absolutely. Where a lot of what Mike has to say or today's guest is based yes. on fact and that's yeah. one thing that I like about having these scientists slash biologists on the show is that they won't throw out a lot of speculation. Opinion. Yeah. Well, it's, that's know. a risk for them because, I mean, their job. So they're, they're really not going to take speculation out. But one thing I like about our guest today, and you'll hear it multiple times, he references this has been well-documented, well-researched. You know, you can tell he's basing things on research he's read that is documented and proven fact. So awesome Dude, stuff. Man, yeah, I, let's get in I there. Mean, I'm, I'm going to listen to this show probably two or three times. And so I don't want to hear me talk. I want to hear him talk. So let's jump in. <laughs> let's right, jump in good. and get it going with Grant. See y'all on the other side. Hey, everybody. Cameron and I are glad to tell you that we have on the line with us today, Dr. Grant Woods from the great state of Missouri. And the name Grant Woods probably sounds familiar to a lot of you guys listening to the show because he is the founder and host of GrowingDeer.tv, and they do a show a week. Is that right, Grant? You're still doing a weekly show on land management? It is. Somehow, management? somehow during COVID, we got stuck doing about two shows a week. I don't oh, know nice. whose idea that was, but yeah, we've been... <laughs> We've, we've been hustling, but it's about hunting season, and I hope to be out more than in front of a camera. So hopefully we can slow that down just a touch. Fantastic. Nice. Yeah. And, and don't let the name Growing Deer TV fool you. Oh, He's no. also promoting a lot of turkey growth as well through there. Yeah, so yeah Grant, absolutely. I, I love turkey hunting. I remember from our first call, and it's been, goodness, probably three years ago now, we talked a good bit about turkey hunting and how much you enjoy it and get to do it there at the proving grounds and you know we we probably just need to make mention that you are a biologist and have several degrees in that topic and have dedicated your life to habitat management and wildlife management and you know I think it's been really cool to be able to see what you've done with the proving grounds from practically day one to 
now implementing the same practices that you tell everyone will work on their pieces of property. And so that's why it's called the proving grounds. Am I wrong? <laughs> no, you're you're exactly right. Of course we're right here north of Branson, Missouri. I can see the twinkling lights of Branson at night and if a lot of folks have been to Branson. It's extremely rocky and and difficult. You know, no everyone comes to Branson to vacation or fish or play golf or something, but no one comes here to go hunting. So I'm from the area, and my wife and I end up buying a little piece of land here, and and it's been uh, a great learning experience to really use you know make it my goal to make this really high quality hunting, and and that stems from high quality habitat and and the techniques we've had to develop through the years does does work in a lot of places we were just down in east texas and real sandy soil if you're not familiar with east texas it you know that piedmont belt and kind of continues from there all the way around through virginia you know up through to just south of dc that that whole belt's pretty much the same and uh, sandy soils or red clay soils and and we work a lot in that area too so yeah it's been fun nice how how long have you had the proving grounds as you call it there in branson you know, my wife and I purchased this right at about 20 years ago, and man, it's just been just a thrill. It, it was an old burnt-out cattle ranch. In fact, I was pulling some old pictures the other day for a, a presentation, and you know, it was covered with eastern red cedar and Cerisia lespedeza and multiflora rose, and oh, I could name four or five other invasive exotic species. And so, as we started trying to control those and develop a few food plots and and really work on our native habitat, also, and through the years to watch it. So now, I mean, I'm just really, I'm just so blessed to have lived through that and watched the changes. And you know, some of the highlights I think is we got rid of fescue and cedars and used a lot of prescribed fire. Several state agencies and federal agencies and I working together have now identified about 176 different species of native grasses and forbs. I mean, that's rainforest diversity and just tremendous wildlife habitat. So it's been fun to watch an old burnout cattle ranch turn into a really, you know, a place that other agencies or universities want to come study. That's awesome. Yeah. What a, what a cool story. And I really appreciate what you do with your education through growing deer tv because you know we talk a lot about public lands on this show but management of private lands is going to be the key to turning this turkey thing around because we all know they're declining and there's a lot more private than there is public you know it needs to really work on both i agree with you here in missouri we're, we're about 98 percent private land we have a, a you know a big mark twain national forest which is huge and and the Missouri Department of Conservation through the years has purchased a lot of land, but we're still primarily private. So really, you got to get past Kansas out west, uh, Colorado and west to start getting in those states that mm-hmm. have, you know, a lot of public land. And I used to work with mule deer in Nevada, and a lot of people don't realize, but that state is 87% public land. Wow. 87%. Wow. And I think this is a, a statement to how we could manage public lands in some areas better is so Nevada has two real neat characteristics. It's 87% federal land. Now there's some big military bases and stuff you don't get to hunt on, but it's a huge amount of public land. And, and and it's the second least populated state in the nation. You know, it just there's it's just so much public land. There's just you know, and it's a desert. No one living there. And and yet you still, if you're a resident, you still got to apply for deer license. You just don't do like the rest of us Southern boys. We don't, you know, we don't. Those folks out there don't go down to Stuff Mart and buy a license or the counter. You apply, and you may get a deer tag, whatever, three years or so. 
And and to me, wow. that's a you know that's a tragedy that 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 huge of a resource is not managed better. Yeah, that is interesting. I haven't I guess studied up on Nevada quite quite that much. So that that's interesting that the few residents that have with all that land are still having to apply. <laughs> yeah, it's sad. I mean, they're just you know anyway. Anyway, it's a little off subject there, but yeah, I, you know, public lands I think are critical just as much as private lands. And that's one reason we really enjoy hosting state agencies here and their personnel and show them techniques we use about, you know, burning different times of year or whatever it is to to help improve native habitat or food plot techniques also. And, you know, one thing that's really struck with me recently is I don't guess anyone alive has really seen the best quality habitat there could be because, you know, as as our nation was settled, and I'm not anti that, you know, it's anything political, but as it was settled, they were cutting trees and plowing without the, the benefit of the education we have now and a lot of erosion, a lot of, a lot of issues going on. And so we're all looking at degraded habitat, even what we think is good is probably not near as good as it was. And that's part of this what we call the release process for food plots or native habitat or regenerative ag in the ag world, you know, we're, we're building soil and, and seeing stuff so much more productive now than we even thought possible just five years ago that, and that's not only beneficial for farmers, but wildlife, you know, when critters eat really healthy plants and have really healthy plants, you have to have really healthy soil. Then they're obviously more productive and they can be more selective in what they eat. They can, pick and choose and, and, and really, you know, uh, wildlife has this tremendous ability to do what's called diet balancing. Now I don't like, I balance my diet with like a half gallon ice cream and a teaspoon. That's kind of my balance of my diet. But I like your, uh, I like your diet. <laughs> you know, deer, turkeys, either one, uh, you know, they can kind of sense, boy, I'm low on X and, and, and deer through the way the infrared light reflects back to them and the smell and taste and other things they can really pick. And an easy way to illustrate that is, you know, we all, you know, hopefully a lot of us had the privilege of seeing a, a big soybean field and some big antlered bucks out there in August eating. And if you ever watch that any time of year, they don't just stand there and, you know, eat the soybeans to the ground, kind of like a cow would or something. They take a leaf off this plant and shift around, take a leaf mm-hmm. off this plant and shift around, take a leaf off this plant. Or if you've watched a turkey foraging through the timber, you know, they scratch and take this bug and not that bug or, you know, whatever it is, this acorn, not that acorn. They're selecting the best and leaving the rest. And and I think we feel differently because so many people anymore got a trail camera over, you know, a pile of feed or whatever. And, you know, critters just come in and put their head down because once you get them addicted to the starches in corn or any of the feed mixes, which is still a bunch of starch, it's, you know, they, they become addicted to that. There's sugars and, and, and they're not selective. They just stick their head in there and go. Right. So what was the turkey population like on the Proving Grounds when you purchased it. It was pretty skinny. You know, we, we didn't hunt turkeys for several years here. You know, you, we, matter of fact, the first, this is an absolute, this sounds like a tale, but it's absolutely true. And when Trace and I bought the ranch, we were living in South Carolina. I had schooled at university at Georgia and Clemson. Tracy's my wife. And, and we were looking for, you know, a big property and ended up finding some, some, something cheap here in these old nasty Ozark mountains. And so moved here, I'm from this area, but moved back here. And, and the first thing I was doing, Missouri has purple paint law, which means purple paint is the same as a no trespassing sign. Yeah. 
you know, and it's a lot better because you can paint a fence post or whatever, and, and no one can steal your sign. And no matter how much they shoot it, it's still purple. It's still there. And, yeah. You know, it just, you know, just cheaper, less expensive, all this stuff. So anyway, the first thing I was doing, a, a guy had had passed away in a local hospital and left this ranch to the hospital. And because it's kind of by Branson, they assumed some big developer is going to buy it. So it's still on the market seven or eight years. And then Trace and I bought it. And, you know, private land that no one is taking care of becomes poacher paradise because it's not like yes. public land. No one's really watching it. No one's there. And to make this place worse, it's split right by county line. So it was the furthest side of a county a game warden from either place would go. I mean, they had to be almost, you know, going to the next county to get here. They did. So it was just ran over with you know freezers that have been thrown at rusted freezers and couches and whatever you know and we started cleaning up instantly and and i was walking to learn this is before all the you know easy google earth and and hunt stand maps and all that kind of stuff and, and painting the edges purple based on topo maps and tax maps and whatnot and there, and i did that with just the time you know when we bought it and whatnot was was during missouri's turkey season so every morning at daylight, I'd stand on a different ridge and listen. And then, you know, after about 10 or 11, I'd, I'd ditch that and go go grab my can of paint and start walking a section of fence. And that, that year, I heard one turkey, and we called him Seed. He would be on the same place every day. And that place was right by where our driveway, the driveway comes into our property. And I think all the trespassers had just driven by Seed. We called him Seed. We nicknamed him Seed. And, and Seed would go... It's a high spot right there, and he'd drift off in this valley and go out in this power line right away and strut every day like clockwork. And Missouri's turkey season is about three weeks long, and I was here every single day, and I laid my hands on two trespassers, but that's the only gobbler I heard during that three weeks. Wow. Literally. And from then to now, I mean, we have really good turkey hunting now. I mean, I, I don't mean to be boastful, but we have really, you know, through a lot of habitat work, and we... You know, we trap, we remove predators. Fur prices are nothing. No, none of our neighbors are trapping, so we have to do triple duty. I mean, we have to really, really work to try to balance the amount of predators with the prey species so the prey species can thrive. And predation is a huge factor with, with turkeys. And it's not talked about much, but it is a huge factor. Yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. is. What, what are you, I mean, for that piece of property, where it's located, and I know this will vary around the country but to you what is an acceptable level of prey or predator to turkey ratio or level and i know you yeah i think an easier easier way to monitor that is kind of your average poult to hen ratio yeah Mm -hmm. and and not just i think some some folks maybe aren't using the best measure this a lot of a lot of maybe even agencies will mail out you know a, a poult survey starting in like june july or something like that and and of course, we know some hens renest and are a little later. And also, just because a pope hatched and made it two weeks does not mean it's going to be part of the population next spring. Yeah, I think pope surveys. I, I like to see those popes at least three or four months old before I considered in the, the official word would be called recruited. They've recruited into the population. It's like with deer. We don't consider fawns part of the population for population estimates until they're six months old. That's when we consider them recruited because they're so vulnerable to predation up to that point. Yeah, that makes sense. So what would be a, I guess, maintenance level of pole to hen on that ratio? And then what would be an expanding population? 
Yeah, so you know, it, one gobbler can breed a lot of hens and does breed a lot of hens, and uh, and hens typically mate with multiple gobblers. It's when you do detailed genetic work, it's 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 really common for there to be you know of a, a clutch of ten for there to be four or five dads, uh, you know, in that clutch of ten. A lot of stepbrother and stepsister poults running around. That's the normal. That's not the exception. That's the normal. And, and so I like to see a minimum, a minimum of 1.5. This is average poults per hen. I kind of consider that somewhere around stables, maybe slightly increasing. Uh, because again, you don't have to have as many gobblers as you do hens. If that was the case, you would want, you know, two. One hen yeah. makes two. One to replace her and one to replace the gobbler. But, you know, a couple of gobblers can breed a lot of hens. So 1.5 is a good number. If you can get in two one, two two, two three, that that population's increasing. Good things are happening. Yeah. How? And, and, you know, we think about that. If we could just, I'm sorry, if I could span it a little bit, you know, so each hen's going to lay an average, depending on where you are in the nutrition of eight to 10 eggs per hen. Some of them are going to re nest. So that, you know, takes it up to 15 or so per hen on an average. And we're hoping to get two out of 15 to survive. That's, that's mm-hmm. you know, crazy. It's yes. ridiculous, and and what and it's not it's not going to be two per hen. That's, again, that's an average. You're going to have one hen out of ten successfully raise a clutch, and if she yeah. has ten out of ten hens, then that averages one pole per ten hens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it really is mind blowing if you if someone sits down and looks at the numbers of what it takes for your turkey population to grow and expand. It's, I mean, it, it just really make your jaw drop when you look at how many nests don't make it. Oh, it's, um, MDC just, MDC is the Missouri Department of Conservation, just released some research. They've, they've got, I don't remember the exact numbers, but bunches of hens up in northern Missouri, radio, GPS, collared, et cetera. And their recruitment weight was one point something 1.1 1.2 just you know just kind of marginal and the amount of per day and they go in because they're a radio caller and everything and check out the nest and see what happened and the amount of predation is stunning you know there's all this talk about infertility which may be a factor and all these other things but in this study the amount of predation is overwhelming and and i like to re i I won't bring this up because i think there's data out here that i'm not aware of any state agency everyone else using and i'm i'm a reader i'm kind of you know i'm a nerd i like to read a lot and reading's cool folks by the way don't ever let me tell you that reading is how we learn that's the primary way we learn but yeah uh, i love to read like the journals and not just lewis and clark oh that's fascinating but every area would have a you know an explore someone kind of there first and they and the folks that explored back then most of them took journals they they wrote in their journals really regularly so here in the ozarks the main guy was his, his name was schoolcroft and he was early 1800s which you know in missouri of course we're you know we're we're young we weren't settled as early as alabama so early 1800 there was you know there was native americans and fur trapping and stuff going on here and schoolcroft he, he you know kind of putzed around through this area just kind of staying alive and keep a scalp and whatnot and man you know those some of those early explorers you know they talk even in this area you know, they see flocks of 400, 500,000 turkeys. And not that many years ago, you saw that in places like western central Kansas in the winter. In the winter when they're all flocked up, they're gathered right. up. It wasn't long ago you could drive through Kansas and, and literally see a 1,000 turkeys in a field. That's hard to believe in a 1,000 turkeys. I mean, just I didn't count them, but state biologists did. Big old wads of turkeys. And even in Kansas, which 
you know, was turkey hunting paradise. I mean, you just went there and you, you know, you just got your limit. I mean, there's landowners now that don't even allow turkey hunting. There's so few turkeys. The change is so fast. It's like, I want to jump up and down and say, wake up folks. We have to do some things differently. Yeah. I think that's obvious because there's a lot of folks are starting to realize we're in mass decline now in, in a bunch of different states. It's not just small areas, but with the proving grounds, with your implementation, and I know weather is going to have some effect there, but have you seen declines like much the rest of the states have? Or are you? No, uh, I mean, we, yeah, we, we've seen some up and downs, but I mean, you know, mm-hmm. we've had, we had a really rainy spring. I think, I, I remember come June, I think we were seven inches above normal. So it was a wet spring. Mm-hmm. And and we've had a great hatch this year. We do participate in Missouri's poet survey. They you know they mail you a new card a month for three months, and you're supposed to write down all the turkeys you see, you know hens, gobblers, and poults. And I'm not sure we've done an accurate record because well we work out in the field a lot, so we have a little advantage. We're out here doing things a lot, but you know we're seeing groups of seven, twelve. One group uh, we've seen a couple of times. It's the same group, but of eighteen poults and. It, I'm sure there's a couple of hens in there too, but 18 poults. So, you know, we, we're seeing, you know, a hundred, hundred plus poults on the property this year in a really wet year, a really wet year. And and I think the difference is guys, I mean, you know, a hundred turkeys is a lot for anyone property, a hundred new turkeys. Now, again, we're, you know, we're just now kind of getting depending on when those poults were hatched, you know, three months old, something like that. So I'm not counting them part of population yet. And we're going to lose some order, going to be some predators, take them down and whatnot. But, that's still a big addition. You know, we have a bunch of jakes running around next year, I, I believe. Uh, but yeah. we trap intensively. I don't mean we set three traps out, you know, over Christmas break. When when season starts, which is right during Missouri's rut, you know, November 15th, I love to deer hunt. I'm a deer biologist. Buddy, we're, we're starting to put some traps out, and we're running them during, the, you know, the middle of the day. You know, probably not on the way to the deer stand in the morning, but, you know, after we get done hunting in the morning, we're running them. And, and we're removing, and I, you know, I'm, I'm blessed. Uh, we trap about 1,800 acres, but we're removing 100, 100 plus, you know, coons and possums, not counting coyotes and whatnot. Every yeah. year. And, and here's mm-hmm. some interesting data, folks. I mean, and I'm, again, I'm a nerd. I'm a geek, whatever you want to call me. So we check the gender and weigh every critter we remove. Wow. And through time, what we've seen is two things. It's really interesting. Our our average weight of raccoons especially has declined pretty significantly. Wow. And now we catch 70 or 80% males. So we've mm-hmm. knocked down. You hear some people say, well, trapping's impossible. It can't work. You know, it won't make any difference. And that's incorrect. Now, it is a lot of work. And, and you know, if you take, if you do, uh, again, I'm going to get two traps and trap, you know, two days during Christmas break. It's, it's not going to do any good. But if you, you know, you really put some sweat equity into it, you and your buddies, whatever, you, you buddy up, you get some traps out several days, uh, you can make a difference. And, and so our body weights are lower. Because now we catch primarily yearling males. We have removed a, a, a fair amount of that resident population. Mm-hmm. And all predators disperse a good bit. And the males disperse farther than females typically. Yeah. So we're catching yearling males and a few females. And every now and then we're get a, we catch an 11-pound, 9- to 11-pound coon. You can walk up. I've seen so many of them now I can estimate their weight really good. And when we started, we were catching, you know, 20, 22-pound coons. We're not up north in north Missouri where all the big ag fields are, and you catch 30, 35-pound coons. We're not up there, right? which is a great thing. Those are like little grizzly bears. I mean, coons are mean. 
They're, they're, yeah. uh, I'd much rather walk up to a coyote in a trap than a raccoon. I mean, every day I'd rather walk up to a coyote. <laughs> Coyotes will almost always cow down. You walk up to a coon, he's ready to take you out. <laughs> yeah, that's that's amazing. You know, I, when you mentioned that so many of them were males, I thought, well, that makes sense. You know, that tells me that you've gotten rid of your a large part of your resident population. And you know, mm-hmm. those are those are males that are being dispersed out into the area. But the other part that I missed there was them being young. And yeah. that, again, goes hand in hand with them being dispersed and pushed away from where mom lives. Taking yeah. their own territory. Yeah, you know, we're not catching. I mean, we catch a few. Those big boars during the early trapping season, in breeding season, they're traveling. We catch a few big boars, but typically mainly yearling males, which probably aren't as efficient a predator. And 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 the wet hen theory was published. It's kind of coming back in vogue. It should have never went out, but it it was published by a great researcher at Mississippi State. It's not theory anymore, but it was published called the wet hen theory. And it come about back in the day. Y'all probably remember it. There was really big clear cuts in the south, and then they'd leave these little narrow streamside management zones to kind of keep sediment from getting in little creeks or wet areas or whatever. You know, and you clear cut, you know, I'm just throwing a number out, 500 acres, whatever, big, big area. And then you leave a little narrow strip. Well, of course the turkeys are going to nest there the first year because it's the only cover around. In mm-hmm. any coon, possum, domestic dog, coyote, whatever, walking the downwind side of that is going to smell every nest in there. And and he published this decades ago, not recently, decades ago, that nesting success when there were narrow strips of nesting habitat declined to not far off of zero. Yeah. And if you think about the big ag areas, Kansas, other places, you know, big ag, little creek bottoms, little, uh, they're called CP33, little CRP strips about 30 to 40 yards around the edge of a field, which are designed, supposed to be designed to make quail habitat. Farmers, you know, usually don't get a great yield next to the field edge because tree roots are taking moisture out and whatnot. Well, those just made what we call predator food plots. Because the predators, the downhill side is usually where the water is, the creek is. Predators are running that creek at night, and, you, you know, there's 30 yards, and, and the thermals, are, of course, cold air, night air, sinks to the lowest spot. So the air is just rushing through that little cover strip down to the creek where the coon or possum or fox or coyote or bobcat, whatever, is walking. And, and if hens get wet, you know, you've turkey hunted a lot. You kill a gobbler, it's been raining that morning or something, or a heavy dude, you kill a wet gobbler, man, they smell so bad you can barely carry them out of woods. I mean, that's turkeys just smell horrible when they get wet so you've got a wet hen sitting on a nest boom she's a it's like a lighthouse saying here's your lunch i got a 10 pack of turkey nuggets right here i mean it's just you know it's horrible but if you've got a big cover area 30 40 acres you know something like that that's really thick from zero to two feet tall uh hen's got a better chance of of pulling a nest off it yeah so trapping and Obviously, the first couple of seasons, not going in and harvesting your only gobbling bird on the proving grounds, but trappings had a large part in your turnaround and, you know, letting bird the birds do what they do the first couple of years have helped. What else have you done around there that's really kind of turned the population around and gotten it to where it's good? Yeah, that's a great question. So that, and that makes me realize I should have prefaced what I said about trapping, which I do think is an incredibly important tool these days. We have to, in Missouri, I'll brag on them a little bit. They do what's called a predator survey every year. They put out scent stations, just like you were trapping with lure, except they don't put a trap there and they 
put sand or some really good tracking surface. And then every day they go count and, you know, identify the species that attracts and count. And they do that all throughout the state. So they can kind of see the trends of our predator populations going up and down. It's not an exact count, but hey, there's more than last year, there's less than last year type thing. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, all states should monitor the amount of fur sold in the state. And of course, that's declining in every state. Last year, you couldn't even sell a coon hind. If you sold a, a really good extra large, you know, prime coon, you might have got $4. You can't even pay for the gas doing that. So right. no one is professionally trapping fur. I mean, no one, no one. And that used yeah. to be such a huge revenue source. It was a huge revenue source. So that's changed and our habitat's more fragmented and that allows predators to be more efficient. So here we worked, as we were trapping, we worked very intensely on creating good brooding, which is also good fawning, good brooding, and of course, nesting and brooding habitat. And to define that, that's that's two things. It's It's cover and umbrella cover. What umbrella cover means is like a ragweed plant, if you think about that, you know, it grows up and then it kind of spreads out at top. So there'd be some bare dirt maybe below it, and but there's cover from avian predators. Because we, when we talk turkey predators, everyone automatically thinks coons and maybe throwing possums or foxes or something. But right. crows are huge avian predators, bust on nest or bust up those eggs, eat the eggs or young poults. Crows are huge predators. There's, there's, depending on which state, there's about 10 times more bald eagles now than there used to be, which is a wonderful thing. I mean, it's a wonderful thing, but uh, I, every spring, every spring, I get people sending me videos of bald eagles taking out their decoy. I mean, it's, and it's, yeah. you know, it's one, one thing for a red-tailed hawk come in, but you see a bald eagle with that kind of wingspan come in and tumble your decoy, it's pretty impressive. And, yeah. You know, if they're tumbling decoys, I'm sure they're taking some hens out too, or, or you know, young toms or whatever. Uh, so there's all, and snakes are huge predators. There's not as much prescribed fire as there used to be, or certainly not as much wildfire here in the east, not California, but here in the east. And now that snake populations build up, and before I get a bunch of hate mail, I'm not anti-snake, although I really am. I don't <laughs> like snakes, but I'm supposed to say I'm not anti-snake. But I, I remember uh, years ago, I just finished my Ph.D. I was working with some students in Auburn that were working on a quail project. And we had little bitty radio collars on quail. They're about the size of a nickel, and there's like these little rubber band things that fit around the rings, and that little nickel collar the, the transmitter part hangs right in the middle of their back, so they can still fly and whatnot. This is years ago, before ease of cell phones, and this kid comes into the lodge at lunch, whatever, and he calls me up and says, man, Grant, I, I don't know, I'm getting this beeper, this, this signal out of the middle of a big logging deck pile. I just, I don't, I don't even think quail will go in there. I said, they don't. But the collar's about $500, so dig in there and see what's in there. Hmm. And, you know, he wasn't too excited about that, because this, the research was in <laughs> South Georgia, some of the big quail plantations and they you know they some big old mr no shoulders down there so anyway yeah. he digs in there and it's a gray rat snake and and he's like what do i do now so we'll get my collar back man that's 500 dollars. get the collar back so he <laughs> hang, kills the snake i've just made some of my mad out there kills the snake and hangs it up and he you know vent up that's that's the you know where snakes go to to if you don't know what the vent is and starts knifing down towards the mouth and this is so cool it was egg of course crushed up egg 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 nine eggs and then the hen the, the, the hen quail that wow. quail had stayed and tried to protect the nest and that big gray rat snake had ate every egg just doing what it does and then ate the hen too and that's how we got our collar back wow so you think about places aren't burning anymore how many and again you know it's not good or bad it's just what it is but how many big rat snakes you know some people call them black snakes all these you know men they're out there all the time too and then armadillos you know men they're busting up nests they're not 
saying, boy, I'm going to eat a turkey egg. They're rooting for insects and whatnot. They're just rooting all the time. And turkey's got a lot of strikes against them. Everything wants a turkey nugget. And, you know, there's a lot of strikes against them. So good cover is zero to two feet high and kind of what we call umbrella habitat. Because if you've got a fescue pasture or a bahia grass pasture, depending on how far south you are, and it's thick in the spring and turkeys may try to nest out there, it's kind of decent cover. But, you know, when that turkey pole or that quail pole hatches, a quail pole's about the size of a bumblebee. They're really small. And brand new turkey poles are, you know, man, they're small. Yeah. They can't walk through that thick fescue pasture. They just they just can't make it through there. They're just dead where they were. Mm-hmm. Their legs aren't big enough to crawl through a thick, thick mat of fescue. And cool season pastures, like, you know, fescue and whatnot, they're so much thicker than native grasses where there'd be a clump of big blue stem or little blue stem, then a patch of dirt, then a clump of grass and a patch of dirt, which is ideal nesting habitat because they can walk on that dirt but there's avian cover there's umbrella cover over the top and young poults they make a living on insects you know spiders ants stuff like that and you find a whole lot more of those insects in that type of habitat so it's not only cover it's their feeding area also yeah. and and if you have any reason that insects are declining you're likely going to have a decline in poult survival they just can't get enough energy mm-hmm. makes sense so one question I have, we just acquired here in Tennessee a new block of property. It's about 1,100 acres. It's mm-hmm. pine up, you know, I think it's about 12-year-old pine. So they're medium size, and there's some bigger, but I'd say the majority of it's 12-year-old pine. And then there's bigger trees along the creek draws that are in it. There's about seven different creek draws that come to a head, very rigid, some hardwoods in the bottoms. And so we just got it. This is my first ever experience with pine or even upland managing for turkeys. And so it has turkeys on it. I think there's a lot of not usable area on it right now. There's the the people who had it before just kind of cut out some little half acre holes in the woods for the deer hunting. And I just wanted to kind of ask, you know, we just got this brand new property. It hasn't been managed at all. It's not a pasture like you had with an old cattle farm, but, you know, younger pine stands what would you say should be phase one to start our turkey because we're managing strictly for turkeys i'm sure we'll shoot some deer okay. for meat but we want i want to have to have earplugs on when i go to this place in the spring <laughs> i hear you i hear you so again it's all about brooding and nesting i was saying backwards but nesting and brooding habitat so when the if you know if, if you have permission i didn't quite know if you owned a lease or whatever but it doesn't matter but as soon as those pine plantations are big enough to be thinned, I mean, as soon as you need the log and crew standing by. And if you're managing it for wildlife, go ahead and take that down to about 60 basal feet per square acre, per acre. And if you're not familiar with basal feet, if you had, you know, these gigantic mechanical arms and they could squeeze all the trees together in a group over an acre, and that was 60 square feet, that would be 60 basal feet per acre. Or think of 60 trees, one foot in diameter per acre, or 32 foot trees per acre. And what that does, that allows enough sunlight down to the ground to allow native grasses and forbs to grow. In a lot of south, especially south of Tennessee, that area will fill up with sweet gums. If you log and, you know, mm-hmm. you're dragging out trees, disturbing soil, it's going to fill up sweet gums. So you're going to let that ride about a year after a logging operation. And then you're going to apply the herbicide. You're going to treat it with 16 ounces of Arsenal AC, Arsenal AC. And the reason I love Arsenal, and I'm, 
I'm not a herbicide guy. I mean, you know, I wish we didn't need it, but we've kind of boogered up this place for so many years. It's like a root canal. I don't like herbicide, but, you know, I don't like a root canal either. But if you don't do it, it spreads and rots out all your teeth and then your gum and your food. So you better just go get the one root canal and take care of it. Hmm. And that's kind of like if you just thin a pine stand and you don't do anything, it's going to fill up with hardwood saplings and be useless for wildlife and pine tree growth. So you've got yeah. to treat it, and, and, and fire won't kill those hardwood saplings. You can maintain it with that after you treat it with 16 ounces arsenal. And the reason I like arsenal, it favors about 170 great species of, of native grasses and forbs for wildlife. It's just, you know, it's not like glyphosate meant to terminate everything. It's a selective herbicide. Now, it's wicked on hardwood. So if you spilled some on the ground below a white oak, you're going to terminate that big white oak tree, or, or at least harm it or damage it. So... Hmm. But pines, and I have a lot of clients in the south, when, when we thin, wait a year, treat with the arsenal, and then follow up a prescribed fire a few years, when there's enough fuel to carry the fire, it turns into an incredible turkey habitat. And now you're treating, you know, whatever, 20, 30, 40, 50-acre pine stand. You've got nesting habitat all through there, and it's just almost impossible for coons to find every nest in there versus a little narrow strip by a creekside yeah. or a field edge. They can wipe every one of them out. Yeah, that because the property is about an hour from the house, so intensive trapping is going to be difficult. So I kind of had already decided our, our best approach is going to be to just the habitat, you know. Habitat. And, and then I'm going to all, you know, I mean, I love turkeys, and I take some bloody noses over it. But, uh, I mean, it's just absolute truth. Backed by science, Mississippi State just had a, a master's student publish her thesis on this. So you can, I'm sure they've got a webinar about it or something, but you're doing some great work there. And anyway, they looked in Mississippi at, you know, corn as bait. That's real popular, of course, in the South. And, then, and putting corn out. And, and corn on ground or even in the feeder gets on the ground or whatever, moisture, high humid environment down there is going to have a little bit of mold growing there. And, it's, and part of that's going to be an aflatoxin, which is very toxic to turkeys. And even at levels of 20 parts per billion, now you can't see or smell mold at that level, 20 mm-hmm. parts per billion can damage turkeys. And then you think about a, you know, a two-month-old poult, little bandy rooster-sized rascal just starting to eat some grain, and it goes into a feeder and loads up on apatox, and it's not looking too good for that rascal. So, you know, I'm not saying don't bait, don't feed, but I'm saying you need to think about all the ramifications. And for the deer hunters out there, a little bit higher load of, of apatoxins can actually harm or reduce the productivity of, of white-tailed deer. And, and then let's think about this. If you're baiting, you think you're helping turkeys, well, I want to give them a helping hand, and you're putting some corn out or whatever bait you're using. You know, after season, after turkey season, you're legal and you're putting some out. I'm going to help these hens. Boy, I'm just going to really help all these poultry and hens. And the turkeys get patterned to go into that corn feeder every day because they're addicted to starch. I mean, like just like me getting an ice cream cone, they're addicted. They're going every day to every day. Well, so are coons. I mean, who's who's got? Now, let's just be honest here. Y'all raise hands. Who's got a trail camera on a feeder that doesn't see way more coons than turkeys? And then one time during that period of time, it rains, and that hen smells like the downwind side of a mule, and and she goes there at noon and goes back to her nest or whatever. And then that coon comes there right at dark, and he smells that hen. Where do you think he's going? Mm. So when you're baiting to make wildlife easier for you to see, please remember you're also making it easier for really skilled predators to find those prey species also. This is well documented. Well, this isn't theory. This is well documented. That's really interesting because 
as you said, very skilled. They're they're out there trying to survive by predator, <laughs> whereas we're doing it for recreation. So they, they have a lot more at stake when they go chasing a turkey, I assume. And they, yeah, absolutely. And all animals trying to survive learn to be very efficient. You know, yeah. we're when we're fat and happy, we don't have to be efficient. You know, but when you're down to the down to the nitty gritty, you learn to be very efficient. You know, you. You're Native American. You try and you know you were back in the day trying to be efficient. You built a little bitty old fire. I told you I like to read all these early explorer books, and you sat close to it, and you you know I mean just a, a pretty small stack of twigs to keep you warm through the night. And you were the early explorers. Well, you had your guys go out in the woods and cut down 14 big logs and build a fire, and you had to stand back 50 yards, and you burned that forest down, and you burned up on one side and froze on the other side. You you learn how to be efficient when you know when you're not fat and happy and a hungry predator comes by and, and smells a, a wet hen or wet poults or whatever. Bingo. That's easy. That's easy money. Yeah. Can we take that while we're here? Can I take that one step further? Please. So about, and I don't want to dwell on this. We talked a little bit of soft air, but you know, about 99% of the seed cord planted in America has been treated with neonics. That's short for neonicotinoids, And that's an insecticide. I, you can Google this. So I'm not going to go in. If you just Google neonic you're fine, but neonics are 30 times more potent than DDT was. Wow, 30 wow. times. Okay. And they're an awesome insecticide. And, and seeds like seed corn or tree, a lot of it is treated with it. And what makes neonics so effective is it doesn't just, you know, and when you buy corn or whatever and it's, you know, bright green or bright orange, it's that color to warn you there's a toxin on there. That's why they're colored that way. Huh. There's a toxin, and it clearly says on the label. If no one reads labels, again, people don't read anymore. It's amazing to me. But <laughs> if you ever read the label <laughs> on bags of corn like that, right up the top line usually is danger. Do not feed to wildlife or livestock. Seed must be buried. Hmm. Wow. First line, not hey, this product's brought to you by blah blah blah. First line, <laughs> right. yeah, and. And so you're a lot of food plot guys. I mean, they got great intentions and some gives them a bag of cheap, you know, corn or they get it through some conservation seed program or something like that. You know, and what a conservation seed program is simply is the big seed companies that don't sell seed this year and the germination rate drops a little bit. They're going to donate it because that's so much cheaper than paying the tipping fees or that's the tipping fees is what it costs to put stuff in a, in a landfill. And the seed's so toxic, they can't use it for any kind of food for you know livestock or anything so they have to dispose of it and it's a lot cheaper to give it to a conservation organization to plant food plots with than it is to put a landfill make no mistake about it money drives the usa make no mistake about it so now all of a sudden you got this very toxic coated seed and you're giving it or giving it for a dollar bag or something like that to wildlifers which sounds so great but a lot of wildlifers aren't no-tilling i do like to no-till but a lot of them aren't so they're broadcasting this toxic seed on top of the ground and who among you hasn't planted a food plot by broadcast and about two hours later, turkeys are in there, you know, eating seed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you got something 30 times more toxic than DDT. And then it kills insects. It's really good insecticide. So, again, we talked about it. For any reason, insect populations go down. That's harsher on the poults because that's all they have to feed on at that young age. That's what they can digest. So, there's just some things to consider there, and I'm not saying neonics is wiping out turkeys. I'm just saying there needs to be some attention paid and some research done. And when you take neonics in the big ag areas, or neonics are so efficient, they transfer through the plant and then get into the grain, the new grain produce. So 
at a lower level, of course, but, you know, you plant corn and some of that transfers into the pollen. That's why neonics are causing the decline in pollinator species like crazy. This is well published, you know, and it gets into the corn and everybody is throwing out corn for deer and turkey and they're eating a lot of it every day. Well, that's starting to bioaccumulate in their little bodies. So, you know, maybe toxic feed, maybe certainly decreased quality habitat in a lot of areas, smaller blocks of cover, not good cover, too thick of vegetation at ground level, a lot more predators. There's just, you know, a lot of things going against turkeys, and we need to work together to to be good conservationists and kind of prop the turkeys back up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even if the neonics and aflatoxins and stuff aren't just straight killing them, I mean, if it weakens them to 50%, you know, I would think easily picked off by predators at that point. A weak bird's not going to survive. Great, great, great observation. Turkey gets a little dizzy or acting a little silly. There's there's someone, again, wanting a turkey nugget. And we know that's the case because some great research out west with CWD, people always ask, how can, you know, if CWD is an issue, how can we not find dead deer river? Well, it's not like EHD where they all die during a pretty short time, about this time of year. CWD deer die throughout the year. But they, they look perfect, and then about the last month, they start, you know, wasting away. And that's You almost rarely see that because once they start acting a little goofy, a uh, predator takes them out. And this is confirmed from great research graduates in and out. And I think it was Wyoming, it's three or four or five years ago, several years ago, had a whole bunch of deer, radio collars, blah, blah, blah. Ended up that like 99% of the deer that died of CWD were actually killed by a mountain lion before they actually died. Because you know how it is. You watch the old National Geographic video and the you know, the saber-toothed lion sitting over there in the cliff in Africa, and, and one of the gazelles runs a little slower. That's the one they wipe out. And oh, yeah. you've got a deer acting a little goofy from CWD. Well, you know, and this has been shown in Arkansas. They get really high rates of CWD when they monitor roadkills. They take samples out of roadkill because, again, the deer's not thinking right. It's got holes in its brain. It's a lot more likely to step out in front of a Chevy when it's got a hole in your brain. Yeah, and, and so, similar with yeah. turkeys could be that- could be. You know, if, if, if poults are eating insects that are dying, because the poult can catch the insect much easier if it's been treated with a neonicotinoid. Neo, neo is nicotine. And mm-hmm. what nicotine does is paralyzes the nerve system. Makes it real easy for a turkey to catch a, you know, an insect when it's not moving too good. Yeah. So maybe so that's going to be the those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's just a lot of things. And we get on top of this by you know, monitoring toxic seed, and, and most importantly, I want to make sure this is clear, most importantly, giving turkeys high-quality habitat, big blocks of nesting and brooding cover, and plenty of food, some good quality food plots, plenty of food, but turkeys are such a broad-diet critter. I mean, they eat little, you know, worms and snakes and all kinds of bugs and acorns and plant material. They, you, you almost never find turkeys starving. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're not like a deer. Deer are super picky, super, super picky. Turkeys are much, much more of a generalist. You know, if it's moving and I can swallow it, I'm probably going to eat it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, one observation that explains maybe how I end up killing turkeys, they may be getting into the neonics and acting crazy. That, that may explain how I luck into one every now and then. <laughs> Another thing uh, I've always wondered is how many gobblers, like, in excellent, perfect habitat could you expect to have on, you know, say, a thousand-acre block of property? Is there any way to, in the spring, I guess, when they're duking it out and stuff like that, I mean, is that 
is that a fair question to ask? Because I've never one thing I looked up said like one turkey per couple hundred acres or something. That that seemed kind of low to me. What do you know? Like what a yeah great population would look like. Well, I've been blessed to hunt on some properties that had great, great populations, and we harvest year after year way more turkeys than that. Now, current, not you know back, not back in the quote unquote good old days. I have a really good friend in Kentucky, and he has about 1,100 acres, and he manages his habitat really, really well. He, you know, he's really into it. That's kind of his his passion, and so he has great quality habitat. And yeah, we we tag a lot of turkeys. He, his buddies, his grandkids. You know, half the neighborhood, it seems like. I mean, he's a real social guy. And, and, and yeah, you know, wounded warriors. I mean, there's just all kind of people tagging turkeys there year after year after year. You know, when you, if you can bump that recruitment up to just, again, throwing a number out here, three, if every hen has three poults survive, man, you got to kill a lot of turkeys to balance that population. I'd love to have that problem, having to kill turkeys to balance the population. Yeah, no doubt. The ex- so wow that, that's really interesting to me i know with the neonic thing if anybody's further interested in that topic there's a video on youtube that you put out called are wild turkeys eating toxic seed so if you want to look that up you can see a brief summary of the neonics you know to further discuss that but that's crazy and the aflatoxins and all that other stuff because i've always said i think it's some kind of chemical warfare in our ag portion of Tennessee, because that's where I'm seeing much larger declines in turkeys and much more rapid the past couple of years is in the West Tennessee portion where all these giant cornfields and everything are. And it also makes sense with your predator food plots because we have river bottoms separating the you know giant cornfields. So if they're getting poisoned and then sitting in those river bottoms, they're easy pickings, I would think. And, you know, I think it's a little combination of all those things. I don't, you know, I don't. Th- I think what makes this problem a little bit more difficult to get our hands around. It's not just one thing. For example, I, you know, I'm, I'm 60 years old, and so I'm old enough. I lived through restoring turkeys, and here in Missouri, not a student, but I was helping a department. We would trap turkeys. That was so cool, man. Go set up a rocket net, get to play with the explosives, and handle a turkey. Doesn't get much better than that, right? I mean, it's just awesome. And so we'd trap turkeys, and we were raising money with the NWTF. I am a member of NWTF, life member of NWTF. And, and uh, we were, I remember so clearly, our, cha- our little local chapter was raising money to buy wax line boxes. Because when we'd trap turkeys and ship them to, you know, to other parts of the state or whatever other states to be restocked, they'd really ruffle their feathers up. And, a, you know, a regular cardboard box is kind of rough on the inside. And you get a turkey really fighting in there. So... We worked with International Paper, not just our group, the whole Turkey Federation, to build these wax line boxes, waxed on the inside, so it would be slick. And when a turkey tried to spread its wings or whatever, it wouldn't really ruffle or rip out some feathers. And the, the you know survival rate of these released turkeys really increased just with that simple change. Well, I think turkeys now need more than a simple change. You know, we need better habitat, and that's you know that takes some doings. And we got a lot of predator, and the better the habitat, predators aren't as much of an issue. But there's some people saying it's only a habitat thing; it's not predators, and that's not correct either. I mean, let's look at it this way: you know, if I had a, a hen turkey in here in in my house, and I fed it and did everything, it could raise a clutch right in here, and you know, have 100% survival, right? And and if and if I have the best habitat in the world, but I average a raccoon every 10 acres. 
or a raccoon, a crow, a snake, a possum, a domestic dog running through, you know, all these things. I don't care how good the habitat is, very few of them are going to survive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a continuum there. And I, I always think it's best to approach it from the habitat side because that solves a lot of problems. But the state of turkeys now, we have to also address some of these other problems. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. You know, this is not a one problem or or one point that needs to be addressed with turkeys it's a laundry list of them and you know i kind of wish that quail hunters had taken an interest in it in the southeast 20 30 years ago in trying to save the quail populations and doing things to protect them you know and to think that the wild turkey's really not i mean seriously it, it could be if things went bad and stayed bad for a period of five years, we could be talking about wild turkeys like we talk about wild quail in the South. Yeah, not many. Reduced seasons, not many. Limited hunting opportunities. That's, that is realistic. It's tomorrow. But yeah. the writing's on the wall, right? I mean, you know, I schooled at, at, again at Clemson, South Carolina, and it was five turkeys in a long season. And now it's three, and you're only allowed one the first 10 days. I mean, the, you know, and... Uh, other states have made. Alabama's going through a bunch of considerations about turkey season. There's some counties in Texas doing away with turkey season. I mean, this is this is brought used to. And I mean, I used to love to go to Nebraska. They, you know, I, I'm I have personally hunted not just in the winter and in the spring, hunted flocks of over 100 turkeys. It's so frustrating because all the jakes run into your setup and you're trying to spook them away and not spook the tom away and. I've literally reached down and thrown a lot of dirt clods at Jake's up in Nebraska on an early season bow hunting up there, trying to spook the Jake's way without spooking that Tom out there at 50 yards staring at you. And, and, and now that landowner doesn't even let anyone turkey hunt because there's so few turkeys. Yeah. And nothing on this property's really changed. I mean, I think some stuff has changed. He's planting corn. It's got neon colors on it and stuff like that. But, you know, it was still a small creek bottom through a whole bunch of ag land, and there was coons then. There's coons now. So I don't think the what makes this further complicated, I don't think it's we have a lot of things to do, but the combination of things to do is not the same in every place. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost, yeah. it's somewhat not necessarily site-specific, but region-specific. I mean, Arkansas used to be a great turkey state, and, man, they're, they're in serious trouble in Arkansas. I mean, right. serious trouble. Yeah. Well— you know, on that topic, I think that personally, Arkansas is taking some of the right steps. My opinion, science and time mm-hmm. will tell if what they're doing is, is going to work or not. And hopefully Mother Nature being weather primarily because, you know, the predators are, are going to do what they're going to do anyway. But hopefully weather doesn't affect their findings too much over the years to come. And they can see what, you know, what benefit, if any, their change in regulations and change in seasons and bag limits and so on and so forth has had to benefit the wild turkeys. So to me, I think they're kind of a case study, you know, as far as the state's concerned for the rest of the Southeast and who knows, hopefully good things are to come from all that for Arkansas. I think they will. I think, I think this is the first year I've heard a lot of talk about Ooh, what's happened to turkeys. It's like the buzzer went off or something. Yeah. And I think sportsmen will really get motivated and, and start asking really challenging questions. And that's going to force other people to come up with good answers. And, and there's, I don't think anyone's to blame. 
I don't, you know, we just waste time in our nation with blame games anymore. I, I'm not worried about blame. I don't think there is a necessarily a blame. I think it's all of us working together to turn the tide and, and help turkey populations. And there's some great researchers out there doing some good work. But I think there's some simple, I don't want to wait 10 years. Like I got a, I reviewed a project the other day that was a very expensive grant for a research project on turkeys, and it was five years. I don't think we have five years, folks. I think it's time for us all to start acting now. Mm-hmm. I think now's the time. What can you do for wild turkeys this year? Can you trap some? Maybe you trap some. Your neighbor traps some. Can you do a prescribed fire? Can you convert some fescue to native habitat? You know, all of us can do something. And 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 I think now is the time. And there are so many great islands, great people doing, great landowners doing really good work and have really, really good turkey populations that we can learn, you know, hey, what are these guys doing? What are these gals doing? What, you know, if, if, it, if it can work, I mean, you, you talked about Tennessee. I got some buddies in Tennessee still that just have phenomenal turkey hunting. It's almost, but it's come so bad, it's almost like you got a good crappie hoe or mushroom place. You don't tell anyone because yeah. it's so hard to come by. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's one of the changes we're making on this show. We, we Cameron and I travel a good bit to turkey hunt, and from here on out, every turkey I hunt and kill is going to be in the territory of Puerto Rico, and every turkey that Cameron hunts and kills is going to be in the great state of Alaska, just to kind of keep some of that. From happening in hot spotting areas, you know, I, I think that's a consideration that that we need to make as well. So mm-hmm. there's just, you know, there's all these little things, and when you take all those little things and you throw them in this pot and you mix it up, it's not good for the wild turkey. Yeah, it's some tough times. Yeah, you guys are spot on. There's, there's, I mean, you know, we're probably having this conversation late. Some state agencies are a little late. I. I, I listened to a commission meeting here in Missouri because I was interested, and they were giving some turkey reports and whatnot, and I, I thought it was really cool. Missouri is a state that has four commissioners. Only two can be from any political party. They try to keep it very unpolitical. It's a great system. I'm a big fan of it, and one of the commissioners is, a, is an older gentleman, and, and the turkey biologists and whatnot were giving some reports, and he said, well, you know, how about predators? Well, in the standard biological answer is all predators aren't much of an issue. I, you know, I'm getting so tired of hearing that. He said, well, y'all been to my place. I got I got really really good habitat and i got way fewer turkeys now than i had you know not that many years ago i i got awesome habitat don't don't tell me it's habitat i got so that's just an example it's really again somewhat site specific it's not a well we all need to plant three varieties of clover and it's going to get better tomorrow you know that's not the answer the answer is you got to address the situation where you are and give land on public land and then give landowners like in Missouri, one thing I'm really bartering for. I mean, I I can't barter. I guess I'm, I'm maybe I'm stumping for, I'm politicking for is we need to be able to remove nest predators during the nesting season, because I've proven with a lot of data here, you over a decade of data that I can just, boy, I can trap. I can run trap. I've run traps Christmas morning, many years here. You can ask my family. I mean, many mornings, Christmas, uh, Hey, I got to take an hour break. I go run my traps. And, but by nesting season, my truck came and I have no corn out. I'm in a CWD zone. There's no corn here. No, nothing like that at all. Just random walking logging roads and places I put trail cameras to, you know, see where gobblers are strutting. There's a lot of coons walking around because I'm the only one trapping in the neighborhood and they feel the void. You got to be able, and there's great research on this. You got to be able to trap right during the nesting season. And if you can do that, boy, you can do some good. 
Oh, yeah. And I mean, if, if I could go out and trap while turkey hunting, I mean, that'd be an easy time to run my traps. I'm already out there hunting. <laughs> that would and be most seasons, yeah, yeah, most seasons are a little bit towards the late of the breeding season, but before there's a lot of pulps on the ground, so that would be good. But, you know, and, and the argument against that is, well, the fur's not very good that time of year. That, I mean, I'm a trapper, and that's true. It's it's called blue, you know, they're shedding that winter coat, excuse me, growing the, you know, summer coat, and the inside of the hide will start turning blue, and, and it's not. And, and that's a real consideration, but I'm thinking, okay, so some raccoon pelts are not fully utilized, and we have more turkeys. Or we save every raccoon, which there's a massive overabundance of, mm-hmm. and the turkey population declines. Now, let me... Let me do 10 years of re- No, no, I don't need 10 years of research. This is an easy answer. We need, we need to work towards saving turkeys, and we're not eliminating raccoons in the peak of fur days when a large raccoon was $40. And literally, when I was on a date and I saw a good-sized raccoon ran over on the road, I would stop. And if it wasn't too squashed up, I'd throw it in the trunk and skin it out later because that was about four more dates worth of money back in there the day right there. I mean, that was, yeah. that was easy yeah. money. And no one's doing that now, you know. You, you, you know, So those are easy decisions based on just, you know, real simple logic. Take all the politics out, just real simple, real simple biology. Yeah, totally agree. Well, Grant, we've had you on the phone for a while, and— I know Cameron and I could keep you for about four more hours, but you've got things you need to be doing other than talking to us. But this has been awesome. I mean, I've really enjoyed this and learned a lot. And hopefully Cameron's gotten a couple of ideas about things that he can do to improve his new hunting property. Absolutely. And I know the listeners have picked up on some things that they can do. And, you know, I, I think the key is that a lot of us, who own smaller tracts of land, or maybe we lease some small tracts of land, we can still do our part. We can still travel and make a little bit of difference. You know, it, it's not going to be what we could do on a larger scale, but think about the positive side of that. We don't have to work as hard as we do for a larger piece of property to trap and run a trap line on something as large as the proving grounds or something as large as what Cameron's going to be running. So, you know, there's there's a positive there. And, you know, those those of you listening, do what Grant said. Talk to your neighbors. You know, if your neighbors don't want to trap and you have the ability because of your state law to trap outside of a hunting season, ask them, hey, do you mind if I run some leg hold traps down this creek bottom that, that runs from my place through your place or from your place through my place. If it's not hunting season and you're not going to disturb them, I have a really good feeling they're going to say, okay, yeah, knock yourself out. So Yes, and, and if I could just say one thing, catching raccoons is very humane and very easy. There's dog-proof traps. There's people call them cage traps or live traps that you know, you're not going to mash your fingers on. My girls grew up learning how to use those traps or very efficient. There's a door that, you know, the critter walks in, it falls down behind them. And and those are great because if you're only there for a weekend, unlike going through quite a bit of time to set a foothold trap, uh, a box trap, you just kick the door shut and then you come back next weekend, you open it up, take off trapping again. So there's they're really easy and effective ways to remove raccoons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Totally agree. Good info. Yep. Everybody will just do their part on what they can we can maybe turn this thing around. So it's great info, Grant. I really appreciate you coming on and spending this time with us. 
Oh, thank you guys for the opportunity, and I look forward to our paths crossing again soon. Yes, sir. That sounds great. Have a good evening, Grant, and we will try to hook up and do this again sometime soon. So thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. Goodbye. I mean, cool information, man. I got. I, I, I have notes. <laughs> I know. I don't know that we've covered such an enormous array of topics, and the thing is, you know, it's all related to improving the population of turkeys. You know, I mean. What we've I've done. never heard anybody keep up with their raccoons the way he does like that. I mean, that is awesome information. Yeah. I mean, just the entire episode from from hello to goodbye. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I got it written stuff. down, I'm, you know, down to 60 basil acres or whatever and herbicide with the arsenic or whatever it's called. I got it written down somewhere. I can't find it right now. But I mean, I have notes on what I'm going to do on my property now. So. Yeah, it's, it's excellent. Arsenal. Arsenal. Yeah, yeah. Well, arsenic's what you poison people with. And... <laughs> yes, or rats, or <laughs> raccoons, or coyotes, or... Yeah. Or, anyway, we won't talk about that part anymore, but yeah. Yeah, no, no it's, better lay off that. It's, I don't know, I mean, I think I'm at the point where I'm saying it pretty much every episode that involves someone other than me and you, but... Those are always the best episodes. Well, they are, but I was just about to say this, Cameron. This ranks right up there with one of my favorite episodes of all time. It really does. It, that was so much concisely put, well-documented information wrapped into you know an hour-long conversation. It's unreal. So I think, I think we could have twisted his arm into going another hour. Well, we and, will one day. Yeah, and I don't. I would not have objected, but man, I mean, that was just good stuff. I, I can't yeah. say anything else other than that was just good stuff. Good stuff with the, the neonics and the the corn, potentially aflatoxin stuff. You don't hear about that much, so that was good to hear. I mean, just all those different topics, awesome stuff. I got some new tips to go for with, with this property we got, which is what I was after. And I think if everybody... If you don't have private land, go do some of this stuff on the public land that you can, you know, trapping. Wherever you turkey hunt, try to implement some of this stuff. Or talk to the WMA manager and get them to do it, you know. So yeah. that that's where we as can do better today. We got so much information, we just have to have the manpower to act on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. And, you know, we touched on so many different things. And, you know, you get on social media today and... People on social media, and look, Cameron and I are no different, are opinionated. And what? we hear a lot of <laughs> the reason turkey populations are down is because of X. Yeah. The reason turkey populations are down is because of Y. But we have to keep in mind, and we, the people listening to this show, have to be the voice of reason. And we've got to get the word out there. It is not X. It is not Y. It's, it it's is A to X, Z. Like. Y, Z, A, B, yeah. C. I mean, and, on and on. episode is proof of that. And if you don't believe that neonics can affect your turkey's population, hey, that's, that's your right. Don't worry about it. Work on the other 26 things that you do believe in. Trapping, yeah. habitat improvement through burning, use of herbicide, you know, they're there to make better quality brood habitat. I mean, there's gosh, a hundred things that we could do. You know, oh, yeah. if you're, if you're full bore into baiting and you think that baiting is the best thing ever and you're not going to stop it, don't stop. 
but do the other things. If yeah, you maybe. do the other things and your neighbors do, you know, maybe they think baiting is terrible, but, you know, they're not going to spend any time for habitat improvement by spraying herbicide. Maybe they're anti-herbicide and they do everything else. We're all going to see an improvement. Yeah. And, and to clarify, you're not talking about baiting turkeys during season. <laughs> no. Uh, no, so, but thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. <laughs> before yeah. the hate mail rolls in, corn for deer, not, and he's not saying yeah. continue to do that. <laughs> yes, but we yeah. all know that the turkeys are going to visit that corn feeder that you have out for the deer. Yeah, I think the aflatoxin neonic thing. I I think there's something there because we've seen a definite rise in feedings of wild animals, and it's more legal today and, and we're seeing declines so, as i said in the show i don't think it's killing them you know you, they're not just laid out dead all around the feeder you know but exactly if, you, if you're weakening them 25 30 percent you're killing them yeah you're feeding the, the predators but Only awesome the episode survive. yes and to be strong as humans you know to survive we need nourishment Eat and i can't think of better nourishment sausage yes than real Cajun Market sausage. It's a great segue there. But Real Cajun Market, they're the sponsor of this week's show and all of our past episodes, which we've touted as being full of great information because they have, not from Andy and me, but from other folks, good information. And they do mail order meat. So how about that in today's world? You can get sausage pre-cooked, handmade by a chef, delivered to your doorstep from the Real Cajun Market. All kind of recipes. Go on their website, the Real Cajun Market. Actually, it's realcajunmarket.com, and you can see all the different options, crab cakes. Order it. It's delivered in a cooler, cold to your doorstep. Throw it in the freezer. Throw it in the microwave. Eat it right there. Whatever you want to do. Excellent stuff. Go to their website. Order there. You can contact them on social media, Instagram and Facebook. Contact Cullen Lord on Instagram or Facebook. He is the chef behind the goodness that is real Cajun Market Sausage. Or you can call his wife, Ann Lord, and her phone number is... 678-471-1150. That is 678-471-1150. And I've got to say this, Cameron. Say it. I finished off my real Cajun market sausages that were in the freezer that I unplugged last week. And yesterday I saved the best for last. Uh-oh. Which one was your favorite? I am a huge fan of Boudin. And I've got I to have... tell you, their Boudin is amazing. And if you guys listening have never had Boudin, if you will get some from the real Cajun market, you'll you'll be a, a fan of it. I promise you. It is that stuff is so good. It's ridiculous. What is your what's your preferred method of of eating boudin? Cullen said he does it on crackers. Yeah, on saltines, really good stuff. Really good. You take good. it out of the casing and then just dip it in there. I take it out of the casing mm-hmm. and but I tell you what I did with this package of boudin that I ate. Threw it in the microwave, heated it up for heat up a link of it for thirty seconds, and just take a fork and just scrape it right out of the casing. And, you know, you can just run the fork down on the outside of the casing for a, a mouthful of it, slide it down the casing, all the good stuff inside there comes out, put it on the fork, mm-hmm. 
eat it. And I mean, the flavor in that, it's got just the right amount of spice in it. The texture's really good. Got some rice mixed in there. Uh, I mean, man. Good stuff. I'm man, that more. sounds awesome. I'm going to go toss them out right now. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. But that's don't awesome. try it with the saltines. Don't discount the saltines, I'm telling you. Yeah, that's what, when, when the chef himself said that's how he eats it, that's yeah. what I'm going for, yeah. you know. So cool stuff. Well, that, that's great. And we appreciate y'all listening for us today. I think it's about time for you to wrap it up for us, Andy. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. We know that you have choices. We appreciate you spending your time with us. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.